we can. First Samuel 17, let's stand for the reading of God's Word tonight. If you're able to do so, if you would stand. Verse 28 down through verse 31, we'll be reading and um, uh, we'll be looking at the question that David asks in verse 29 and then uh, continues to repeat uh, to the men. Verse 28 says, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down, thou mightest see the battle. David, you just want to see blood. 29, And David said, What have I now done, Eliab? What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul and he sent for him. We're looking at the life of David on Sunday evenings this year, and the title of the message this evening is the question David asks Eliab in verse number 29, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for David and his life, and Lord, especially young David who had a heart that was just kindled and on fire for you, and uh, Lord, madly in love with you, and so much, so much here we can uh, gather and learn from. He was a good balance of both zeal and knowledge, and uh, went after uh, truth, uh, went after uh, his enemy, uh, the, your enemy, really, Lord. But uh, uh, Lord, he went after that enemy with great uh, zeal, and Lord did so with a balance of truth. May we look at this thought tonight about the cause of why we do what's right. May we get a burden and a fire in our hearts about that cause. And may we march forward to do our best, Lord, to be defenders of the faith. Lord, to be proclaimers of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. War was in the air. Much like it is uh, today over in Europe. War was in the air in Egypt. King Saul had sent David home to his father Jesse where he would go back to tending Sheep and David's three older brothers had been chosen to be in Saul's army. The Philistines and the Israeli armies met in Judah uh, in a rural outskirts part of town at where the armies were posed to go to war. Goliath was a giant and a mighty warrior from his youth. And instead of the two armies fighting a traditional battle, Goliath had stepped to the forefront and had challenged Israel's top warrior, whoever that might be, to a one-on-one, one-v-one battle. This God-defying and God-cursing giant would come out every day, uh, sometimes multiple times a day. He would come down in the valley. The two armies were were, were, uh, were stationed on uh, mountains or, or hills. Uh, down in the middle was a valley. He would come down in the valley. And he would challenge Israel and taunt them, curse their God day in and day out. Uh, uh, calculations of Goliath's sight range somewhere between eight and a half feet to nine feet, nine inches tall. And the man was gi- just gigantic. We'll look more at Goliath next week. But we'll just say this, when Goliath would come out and he would breathe out his threatenings and breathe out his God-defying and God-cursing uh, uh, language to the Israelites, the Israelites, they would not run toward him. There wasn't a line of men who were gathering together to around and fight him. No, they would all run and hide. They would cower in fear. Thirty days this had gone on. Thirty days Goliath had come out and challenged Israel. And thirty days there were no takers 
to go up against Goliath and fight him. So the armies were, in a sense, in a stalemate. Jesse uh, had no idea what was going on. There was no Twitter or Facebook. There was no uh, uh, 24-hour news source. He, he uh, did not have a cell phone. There was no telegraph even back then. And so uh, he did not know what was going on and knew the battle was taking much longer than it should have. So he took David, his youngest son, and gave him some uh, provisions of food and whatnot and sent him uh, to the battle to uh, uh, nourish the men, encourage the men, and get a report of what was going on. When David arrived at the camp, uh, he was there amongst mingling amongst the soldiers and Goliath came out. And Goliath put on his spectacle. David standing there, uh, talking with, uh, uh, enjoying the company of his brothers and the other men. And here comes a big bad Goliath to put on his God-cursing, God-defying show. All of the men there, they ran and hid. Literally got up and ran from the conversation with David and went and hid behind rocks, went and hid uh, where they could. Everyone ran and hid except David. While others were afraid, he was emboldened. Others ran from Goliath. David stood tall and maybe even took a half a step toward Goliath. Once Goliath had gone back to the camp, talk began circling about. Saul, King Saul, had put a bounty on Goliath's head. King Saul was willing to pay a handsome price to the man who was able to take him out, including freedom for the family of the man who did it, freedom within the country, freedom from the tax laws, and freedom from some of the other obligatory uh, type requirements put on families where you have a, a monarch reigning, they would be set free from those things. David began inquiring about this bounty, wanted to know more about what would happen to the man that defeated Goliath and old Eliab. Remember Eliab from a couple of weeks ago? We talked about Eliab. Eliab was the oldest brother. Samuel went in to ordain, a, a, a anoint rather, the next king of Israel. And Eliab was big and strong and impressive. And had his act together on the outside. And, and Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And, and God said, he said to Samuel, he said, uh, that is not the one. He said, while he looks impressive on the outside, God sees the heart. God sees the heart. Eliab, the Bible says, was was rejected, or rather was refused. Eliab was refused from the service of the Lord because he had the outward right, but the inward was flawed. The inward was flawed, and this same Eliab, this same older brother, uh, who's probably at this point now jealous of David because he's watched David be anointed to be the next king right in front of him, he sees David stepping up courageously and asking about this. Eliab chides. Eliab corrects. Eliab, the Bible says his anger was kindled against David and he pushed back and he began to uh, uh, question his motives and, and David responded with a question to Eliab. We find that in verse 29. David responds to Eliab with this question, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? The obvious answer was yes. There was a cause. David then turned from Eliab and began to walk around the camp of Israel as if to uh, uh, say to the men, man up, man up, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Why are you hiding? Is there not a cause? Now the obvious answer was, yes, David, there is a cause. Goliath was a challenge to the nation of Israel. This giant was making a mockery of their God. This giant was opposing and threatening destruction on their God-fearing culture. 
This giant was intimidating and threatening to take apart their freedoms and rights as a people, and no one was willing to oppose him. Yes, there is a cause. There was a cause. I look around at our world today, and I see the same thing. The the same is true today. Yes, Christian, there is a cause. The giants of pop culture, political correctness, sexual immorality, and perversion are staring down our way of life, Christian. Staring down our liberties, Christian. Staring down our freedoms, Christian. Threatening to take them away. You say, oh, that's hyperbolic type talk. That's not actually happening. And I would say, look at the court system in the U.S. of A. over the last 15 years and you will see sexual immorality or sexual liberty up against religious liberty. And in more more cases than not, sexual liberty is knocking down religious liberty. And people who want their sexual rights are, uh, those who want their religious rights have to bow down to those who want their sexual rights. They're coming after us. They're coming after what we believe. They're attacking us. My friend, my Christian friend, there is a cause for you to stand. There is a cause for you to fight. Furthermore, Christian uh, church attendance is in steep decline. Steep decline. Christian homes that teach Judeo-Christian ethics are in decline. Belief in the God of the Bible is in decline. When I was a young man, I'd go out inviting people to church. I'd knock on doors. I'd, I'd, I'd talk with folks. And, and, and you say, well, uh, you live in the Southeast and you're a boy. I'm also talking about when I lived in liberal uh, Maryland. I'd go door knocking, 16, 17, 18 years old. For that matter, even 10 years ago, I'd go door knocking in Maryland. And, and, and listen, what I'd find is the average person had some idea of who the God of the Bible was. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who Adam and Eve were. They knew who Moses and Abraham were. They had an idea of the narrative of the Bible. But today, I find as I'm out inviting people to church, fewer and fewer and fewer people really truly know the story of the Bible. Judeo-Christian ethics in our homes are on the decline. The traditional Christian home is on the decline. The idea of taking personal responsibility of one's life is on the decline. Uh, Belief that the Bible is the beginning and end of morality and truth is in decline. There is a cause. Purity and holy living are also on the decline. In this country, our way of living And our belief in God has never been threatened like it is right now. In this country, our way of living as Christians has never been under assault like it is right now. Is there not a cause? I worry about my children. I especially worry about my grandchildren. If Jesus doesn't come back, I'm concerned about the country they will inherit. Oh, I heard preachers say the same thing when I was a little boy. I heard preachers say the same thing, that they were worried about the country that their children would inherit. And and I look back at where America was and its morality when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, and I look at where it is now, and oh, how far we've fallen in just 25 years. Oh, how far we've fallen. And listen... Uh, The way it's going, it doesn't look like it's going to be getting better anytime soon. 
It used to be that certain words were not allowed on the TV screen, but now with services like Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and the like, you can hear any word on any TV show you want anytime. It used to be there was some level of decency and modesty in what people would and wouldn't wear. Now, with the invention of the Internet and TV streaming services, you can pretty much see anybody in any state of modesty that you want at any time. It used to be that people were careful with their language out in public, and people that worked in stores were careful with the type of words they used. Now it's common to hear pretty much any word coming out of the mouth. And by the way, men and women alike curse at the same level on a regular basis. There used to be a sense of decency about this country when it came to morality, but now if you want to hold to morality, you want to hold to truth, you are labeled as old-fashioned, you are labeled as strange. Our idea, our way of life is becoming extinct. It is quite possible and even likely that America will soon become a country where Christian living is not only unpopular, but in some cases, in some ways, illegal where church attendance is not only untrendy, but if you attend a church that preaches the Bible, as it's written, it will become a crime. A place where sexual purity and the traditional home uh, with Christian values is not only rare, but labeled as hateful and bigoted. The elitist of this country are just like the giant Goliath. They are powerful. They are practiced. They are well-equipped, they are intimidating, and many Christians are responding much like the Israeli army. We hide. We keep our mouth shut. We go along to get along. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Is there not a cause? Oh, yes, there is a cause. Any God-fearing Christian can be observant enough to see that. I believe that like David, we can rise up and slay the the giants of ideology that are in front of us. We do this by living our lives with purpose. We do this by being vocal about our faith. We do this by having an attitude that is genuinely concerned about our future, committed to the cause, and confident that we can and we will make a difference. We will take the stones of truth and we will sling them at the the giants of ideology of wickedness and we will lay them flat and decapitate them. Let's give our attention to three observations as we consider this question along with David, is there not a cause? Number one, point number one, notice the absoluteness of the cause. The absoluteness of the cause. First Samuel 17, look down at verse number 29 with me. The Bible says, and David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. As David walked around the Israeli army and questioned them, I'm sure to a man they thought within their, ha- within their heads, Obviously, young man, obviously there's a cause. Why do you think we're here on this battlefield? If we didn't believe there's a cause, we wouldn't have ever picked up our swords and our shields and gotten suited up and come out here to begin with. Clearly, David, we believe there's a cause. Why would you ask such a question? The men knew there was a cause, but they were not willing to put their own life on the line to defend it. Listen, Christian, we all know the world is wicked. 
We all know that Christians need to take a stand. We all know that we are in the Lord's army fighting for His cause. But the question is not, are you willing to collectively join an army? The question is, are, what are you willing to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Let me give you an A, B, and a C here as we look at the absoluteness of the cause. Letter A, notice, many are spiritually anemic. Many are spiritually Anemic. The word anemic, as is defined uh, in the dictionary, uh, means this, having a deficiency of the hemoglobin, often accompanied by a reduced number of red blood cells. Someone who's anemic has a lack of blood. But there's a secondary definition for the word anemic, and, and, and that would be this, lacking power, vigor, vitality, or colorfulness. Listen to this, listless or weak. Listless or weak. Look down at verse 23. First Samuel 17. Look at verse number 23. The Bible says, And as he talked with him, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. Look at the, uh, the anemic nature of the men. And I'm not talking about their blood count. I'm talking about their, their, their spiritually anemic. Look at verse 24. And all the men of Israel, all the men of Israel, which uh, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. You can see these men of war lose their color. As they run and hide. You can see their face go flush. Right? You you can see them white as a ghost. Right? White as a sheet, as the phrase goes. Um, What happened? They, They lost their spiritual ability to stand up and do what's right. Many Christians know there's a cause. But they're afraid to get involved in the fight. They're afraid of, of choosing sides. Privately, they'll choose a side, but, but publicly, when pressed, they don't want to say much. They don't know how to say. They don't know the manner of which to say it. Where does a Christian find his power? We find our power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew twenty six twenty eight for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It is through the blood of Jesus uh, that our sins uh, are powerfully washed away. Uh, what kind of power does the blood of Jesus have? It has the power to wash away the sin stain on our soul. I, I've had some, some dirty clothes. When I was a boy, I'd roll around in the mud out and uh, play in, in the ditch, and, and I'd bring in those muddy clothes. My mom would throw them in the wash and do the best she could to, to, to use all the detergent she could to get it out. Sometimes she was successful. Sometimes she wasn't. But there is no sin stain. There is is no immoral sin stain that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away and remove. His blood is powerful. And a blood that can wash away the sin of the most vile, wicked person walking planet earth, that same blood can empower you to go forth and fight for the cause of Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by traditions from your Father, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
There's a crimson thread that runs throughout Scripture that provides power to our heroes of faith. Many Christians have forgot where the power to stand against the Goliaths of sin and Satan comes from. We are emboldened by the blood of the Lord. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Many Christians do not take up the cause because they are spiritually anemic. Is there a cause? Yes, there's a cause. We fight for this cause by the blood of the Lamb of God, the same blood that defeats sin. Letter A, some, many are spiritually anemic. Letter B, many are spiritually lethargic. Many are spiritually lethargic. Lethargy, as is defined in the dictionary, means the quality or state of being drowsy and dull, listless and unenergetic, or indifferent and lazy. Indifferent and lazy. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, we find Jesus with His disciples right before He's arrested. And He says to the three, Peter, James, and John, please put that on vibrate, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Too many Christians are too lazy to get involved with the cause. Too lazy. I really believe that if Jesus were to come back tonight and, and the catching away of the saints were to happen tonight, more people would be raptured per capita out of the U.S. of A. than any country in the world. It isn't that there aren't Christians in this country. It isn't that there aren't saved people in this country. It's that many who are saved are doing nothing for the cause of Christ. They've rolled over and played dead and they're letting those who are sinful, they're letting those who are politically correct, they're letting those who are leading this country down an immoral uh, path, uh, have their way and eat our lunch because Christians are lethargic. Christians are lazy. Christians are too afraid to stand up and say something. It isn't that they're afraid, many of them. It's that they just really don't care. Romans chapter 12. Turn over there for me. Romans chapter 12 and look at verse number 1. I don't want to get to heaven and God look at me and say, you were too, too, too drowsy and dull. I don't want to get to heaven and find out that He looked at me and said, well, you didn't do enough for me because your passions, your interests lied elsewhere. I don't want to be that servant that buried my talent in the earth and did nothing with it for the cause of Christ. When it comes to fighting for the cause of Christ, they are spiritually, those who are lethargic, they're spiritually a sluggard. A sluggard. Look at Romans 12, look at verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That means that every day you wake up and say, Lord... Here is my life. I will do exactly what you want. I will not do what I want. I will do what you want for your cause. Because I'm not here to promote my cause. I'm here to promote your cause. I'm here to take the cause of Christ. And I'm here to propagate it and promote it and push it. I'm here to do everything I can to be a warrior for the Lord. I'm going to strap up my spiritual armor. I'm going to pick up the sword of truth. And I'm going to go to battle. I'm going to be a living sacrifice for the Lord. Look back at verse 1. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. God's not asking of any uh, anything of you that's too great or grand. Listen, these boys at war against Goliath, they were supposed to be willing to put their life on the line and be willing to die for the cause of their country. 
And when Goliath came out, instead of running toward Goliath, they ran and hid. It would have been just their reasonable service to lay down their life to defend their country. Look down to verse 9. Romans 12, look down to verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly, affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Look at verse 11. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not slothful. Hey, not lethargic, not sitting on our hands and, 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 and letting uh, life happen to us. No, we're going forward and we're getting it. I wonder how many able-bodied men never even made it out to the battlefield. How many were back home taking it easy, sitting on their couch, sipping a lemonade, or, or having a barbecue with their family while their brothers were on the battlefield? Uh, listen, there were men who were on the battlefield who were spiritually anemic, but at least they weren't lethargic. At least they had signed up to go to war. At least they were on the battlefield. Boy, many Christians are sitting on the sidelines. They're not even willing to get in the fight. Too many believers are lethargic toward the cause of Christ. They are content to let their brothers and sisters go into battle. And they themselves are too lazy to lift a finger to help the cause. Many are spiritually anemic. Many are spiritually lethargic. Let her see, many are spiritually apathetic. Many are spiritually apathetic. Apathy, as is defined in the dictionary, it goes like this. Lack of interest in or concern for things that others find moving or exciting. Look down at verse number 28. 1 Samuel 17. Find your way back over there. Look down at verse number 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said... Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done, Eliab? What have I now done? Is there not a cause? You know what Eliab was telling David to do? Eliab was telling David to go home and stop caring about what was going on. He was... Eliab was telling David, go home and be apathetic toward the battle. Just, just go home and quit caring. And he questioned David's motives. Personally, I mentioned this in the introduction. I'll insert it here again. Personally, I don't think it's too difficult to read between the lines and see here that Eliab was jealous of David. He was jealous. First of all, Eliab was hiding for the last 30 days every time Goliath came out. Mr. Big Bad Eliab, right? I mean, when Eliab stood before Samuel, he looked impressive. He looked big and strong. He, 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 was, he, he probably had washboard abs and, and gigantic biceps. And, and, he, and he had the cut of a warrior. But when Goliath came out, he was hiding. And here is his little brother who just showed him up in chapter 16. And now here in chapter 17, he's showing him up again. He's asking how he can go to battle while Eliab is hiding. Take your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 in verse number 15. While David was not apathetic toward the cause, many today are. Many today are. I, I preached this message uh, 
about the, 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 the evil that our country is being led into, the, the, the moral depravity we find ourselves in, the, 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 the celebration of sin and a culture of disobedience and rebellion that, that exists in, in, our, in, our, in our world today. And many just shrug their shoulders and say, eh, it's not that bad. Eh. And I'm talking about people who sit on a church pew. Look at Revelation 3, look at verse 15. I know thy works... That thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and not cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, God says. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you've got it all together. You think you've got it all. You, you think you're rich, but really you, you're poor. You think you're dressed in the finest of clothes, but God says, I see straight through that, and you're spiritually naked. God says, you think you see straight, but you have blinders on, and spiritually you're blind. The church of Laodicea was a church riddled with apathy. Apathy. Many pastors get discouraged because they try their best to sell their people on living for God and buying into the cause. But so few do. Many people who attend church are content to sit on a pew or in a chair, but do very little, if anything, to take up the cause of Christ. Why? Apathy. Apathy. Apathy is causing the church in America, to die on the vine. Apathy is causing the church in America. Why is it that church attendance is on the decline? Because people shrug their shoulders and say, eh, whatever. You know, as, a, as an adult, when I talk to a teenager, my least favorite response from a teenager is this, whatever. Whatever. You know what they're saying? I really don't care. I really don't care what you have to say. I really don't care what you have to think. What? The fleshly side of me just wants to whack. But I look at Christians today, and I, I could preach a sermon like this every week till Jesus comes back. And so many Christians, eh, eh. Now you would be you wouldn't be so disrespectful as to do that in a church service or do that to my face. But you know what your actions say? Eh. Eh, whatever. Uh, you know, Pastor, I would pass out a track, but eh, whatever. You know, Pastor, I would learn how to lead a soul to Christ, but eh. Whatever. You know, Pastor, I would take a stand at work about people taking God's name in vain, but eh. Whatever. I'm used to it. It doesn't matter. I just have to say right here, my blood boils when I hear someone takes God's name in vain. It's a sin for me to be angry. And I admit that up front. Righteous indignation is not found in the Bible. In fact, at least those words, when people get righteously indignant in the Bible, nothing good comes behind that. And I completely understand that. But I am tempted to be angry when someone takes God's name in vain. That is my God. Would you be apathetic if someone was taking your mother's name in vain at work? Constantly putting down your mother? Your mama didn't die on a cross for you. 
Christians are just apathetic today. Now, you all showed up on a sunny night in New England to hear someone get up and, and, and scream and spit and holler and preach the word. I don't know that anyone in this room is truly apathetic. But are you anemic? Are you really claiming the power of the blood of Christ to, to use this? Listen, we're talking about the absoluteness of the cause. This cause is real. And if Christians don't get a backbone and find a spine, and we don't get some men in our Christian movement to grow some hair on their legs and stand up and say something and do what's right and lead the way, we're not going to have a church and we're not going to have a country to hand our children and our grandchildren. The absoluteness of the cause. Number two, we see the attributes of the cause. The attributes of the cause. Letter A, we have a superlative cause. We have a superlative cause. There is no greater or grander cause to join than that of our most gracious and wonderful Savior. Giants of the faith have taken up this cause. Jesus Christ himself took up this cause. Psalm 69.9 is a, a prophetic messianic verse. Messianic Psalm. 16, Psalm 69.9 says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Jesus was filled with such zeal that he turned over the money changers and ran them out of the courtyard of the temple. He was passionate about this great cause. Take your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to read from verse 9 down through verse 15. Paul lays out for us in 2 Corinthians 5 how glorious, how superlative this cause truly is. It is a cause worthwhile. There is no greater cause than the cause of Christ. There is no greater cause than standing up for truth and morality and, and leading the way uh, by putting the Bible first in our life and pushing this on our culture. Look at verse number 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Paul is speaking here to the church of Corinth. He says, Wherefore we, we labor, we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that uh, everyone may receive the things done in his body, according uh, to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing that one day the terror of the Lord is going to be uh, released on those who've rejected Christ, we persuade men. Knowing, one, knowing that there is a literal hell where sinners will be sent who do, do not re, uh, repent from their sins, uh, we persuade men. Knowing our cause, we persuade men. But verse 11 continues, But we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, look here, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not, not henceforth live unto themselves. We're not to live unto ourselves, but, but rather we're to live unto him which died for them and rose again. Amen. What is the cause? The cause is that Jesus had sacrificed his life on the cross so that we could be given, uh, he could take our death and give us his life and we are given that life and we are to live our life for him and for his cause. 
if someone died for you, how would it affect you toward him? What if the person were important and they had died for you? What if he gave up an enormous promotion for you? What if that person who gave his life for you was Jesus Christ? There is no greater cause. There is no greater cause than serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect God-man. We have a superlative cause. Letter B, we have a divisive cause. We have a divisive cause. Take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. I'll join you there in a moment. 1 Peter 2 verse 6 says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded unto you, unto you that believe, unto you therefore which believe he is Precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. I had a young lady come sit in my office about two months ago, a young lady who is a recent graduate of the University of Bridgeport. This young lady has gone all the way through public education from kindergarten all the way through college. And she sat in my office and I just could not believe how brainwashed she was and how far gone of a case she was to try to reach with truth. Uh, She'd also been raised in a Baptist church, not this Baptist church, but another Baptist church, but she had completely disavowed and did not accept the teaching of that church. And when I asked her about God and the Bible and prayer uh, in the classroom, she said to me, that would be offensive to have God in the classroom. To have the name of God mentioned in the classroom. And I looked at her and I said to her, I said, Why is it that the name of God in the classroom is offensive, but the name of God outside of the classroom in the hallway being taken in vain is not considered offensive? I said, To me, that is a double standard. How come it is that if we speak of God positively in the classroom, that offends? But when we speak of God in a negative way, in His name in vain, she said, oh, it's not a big deal God's name is taken in vain. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. To her, the name of Jesus is offensive. To her, and many like her, the name of Christ is a stumbling block. It's been rejected. And that day she got up and left my office on verbally amicable terms, but visibly upset, not at me and the way I presented things. She was upset over the positions that I held because the name of Christ is divisive. The name of Christ is defensive. divisive. You see, it brought us here together in unity because all of us here believe that the name of Christ and the cause of Christ is superlative. It is greater and grander than anything. But there is a world out there that hates our Christ, that hates our Savior, and the name of Christ, the cause of Christ is divisive. Jesus said as much in Matthew 10, look at verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother 
more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus said that my name will divide households. My name will divide countries. My name will cause division. Those that accept me will find it as a stepping stone to better things. Those that reject me will be tripped up by it. It will be a divisive cause. Listen, there are many of you in the room here today. You are what I'll call a people pleaser. A people pleaser. And on some level, being a people pleaser is a good thing. You don't need to walk around intentionally offending people. I try not to walk around intentionally offending people. And listen, where my disposition offends, I am in the wrong. But where my position on Christ offends, there's nothing I can do about that. There's nothing I can do about that. If you're going to make me choose between truth and error and label me as a hater because I won't get on team error, then my friend, you can put whatever label you want to on me. Let God be true and let every man a liar. We have people who are willing to acquiesce and bend and be supple in their attitude and their spirit and what they stand for, depending on who they're with. I see kids who go to school, public and Christian alike, and they morph into and become whoever they need to be at school to get along with the kids at school. And then they come at church, and when they're around the youth pastor, they're around the pastor, they morph and chameleon into who they need to be to be accepted by them. And many adults do the same thing at work. You're afraid to take a stand for what's right. You're afraid to be seen reading your Bible in the break room. You're afraid to be seen with your head bowed in prayer. You're afraid to uh, hand a gospel check. You're afraid to witness. And listen, if your employer's got rules against certain things, you have to be careful and respectful to what your employer wants. But listen, don't you hide behind uh, rules of an employment uh, and not be a witness for Christ everywhere you go. We're afraid to hand out a track because, oh, that might get rejected. Is there not a cause? Do we not understand that some people might ball up the gospel track and throw it back in our face? Oh, it doesn't happen often, but it may happen from time to time. We're so worried about what other people think about us that we're willing to let them die and go to hell because we're not willing to step outside of our comfort zone. We're such people pleasers. We're not willing to give them a gospel track. God says, my name is divisive. You just have to be okay about with that. Listen, you be sweet in your stand, but take a stand. Take a stand. We have a superlative cause. There is no greater cause than the cause of Christ. We have a divisive cause. Letter C, we have a pervasive cause. A pervasive cause. The word pervasive is defined this way, spread throughout. Spread throughout. The the cause of Christ, it ought to take over and leak into every compartment of your life. It ought to leak down into your soul and take over who you are. It ought to change everything you think, everything you watch, everything you listen to, who your friends are, where you go, how you behave, how you look at things, your worldview. The, The cause of Christ ought to be so pervasive, it changes the dynamic of every bit of who you are. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. 
Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all, do all, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. The cause of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to reach into your life and touch every aspect of who you are and how you think. It ought to transform your thought life. It ought to transform your work life. It ought to transform your home life. And it ought to cha- transform your church life. It ought to change your mentality toward politics. It ought to change your mentality toward music. It ought to change your mentality toward entertainment. It ought to change your mentality on how you use your time in each of those categories. The cause of Christ should find its way into every nook and cranny of your being. You know why David was willing to stand up and fight the giant? Because he had such a heart for God. He had such a deep love for God that when Goliath stood there and mocked his God and cursed his God and and defied his God, uh, Goliath took a step toward him and said, Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. You see, I am a believer in the Jehovah God of my country deep down in my soul. And listen, you may curse the name of my God. I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. And if I die, it's a cause worth dying for. David, his love for his God was pervasive. It leaked down deep into who he was. We see the absoluteness of the cause, the attributes of the cause. Number three, let's see David's attitude Toward the cause. David's attitude toward the cause. Letter A, he was concerned. He was concerned. Look at verse number 20. 1 Samuel 17. Go back there with me. Look at verse number 20. The Bible says, And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. We'll look at the rest of the verse in a moment. Notice that upon command that David did not delay. He rose up early in the morning. How many of you are early risers? Raise your hand if you're early risers, all right? Okay. 9 a.m. is not early. You all know that, right? Okay. I say, if you're not getting up early enough to see the sun, then you're not really an early riser. And before you old people get uh, judgmental, uh, you can't sleep past 4 a.m. because you've got to get up and go to the bathroom, amen? So take it easy on us, Amen. All right? Um, Early risers. David, he got up early. You know why? Because Jesse had told him, Hey, David, I want you in the morning to go and and leave your sheep with a keeper and go look after uh, your brothers. Go look after the men of war. Go check up on them. And David went to bed that night, and and he just could not wait to get up and go. Have you ever been so excited about the trip the next day that you woke up all throughout the night and you kept looking at you looking at the clock and, and say, is it time? Is it time? I don't want to oversleep. Is it time? And you're just so excited. You, you can't help, but you can barely even get into a rim-style sleep. You just want to get up and go. And David was so concerned about his brethren. And David was so concerned about his country and the fight for his Lord that he could not wait until the next morning to get up and get after it. There was no dragging his feet. There was no excuse-making. There was no, when I get this in order... I'll get involved, or I'll go do it, Dad. No, early in the morning, he got up, he left his sheep, and he went and did just as his father had told him. Let her be. He was committed. He was committed. Not only was David concerned, he was committed. First Samuel chapter 17, and look at verse number 20. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench... As the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. Look down at verse 22. 
And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. When called upon to do his part, to support the cause, David hopped up and jumped right in. He didn't check his calendar. He didn't check his pocketbook. He didn't check anything. He said, there's a cause. Count me in. I'll figure all that out later. There is a cause. I'm in. Why? Because David was committed. David was committed. Over the last 25 or 30 years, the number one thing that's been lacking in our churches across this country are men and women who are truly committed to the cause of Christ. We have gotten so good at giving what I call positive non-committal answers. Miss Cheryl calls you. Hey, can you help me in the nursery? Well, well, let me see if I can, I will. Let me see if I can, I will. But the Tom calls you. Can you usher? Well, well, if I'm if I'm around, I'll, I'll be happy to step up and help. I'll be happy to step up and help. Uh, pastor says, hey, can you teach a life group? I'm thankful we just had a life group meeting last Sunday night. A whole bunch of people showed up, and people are noncommittal. Well, uh, w- when I can, I will. I might. I'll see what I can do. Uh, can, can you just sit on the pew and be here week in and week out? Well, I'll see what I can do, Pastor. You know, we got other things in our, in our, da- our date book and our calendar, and we may not be able to make it out to church. We may not be able to make it out soul winning. We may not be able. Listen, are you committed to the cause of Christ or not? Are you all in on this thing or not? I'm watching, uh, I'm watching our, 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 our Christian uh, heritage like a sinking ship go down. And I'm going to go down with the ship. I'm committed to going down with the ship. But I think if more Christians would get involved, we could bail the water out of the boat and fix the hole before it goes down. Too many Christians are not committed to be willing to do that. God does not just want you to be committed when it's easy. God wants you to be committed when it's hard. When it's hard. I'm preaching. I'm just going to keep going. America's gotten soft. The men of this country are soft. I have no problem with strong women. But I have a problem with soft men. God made men to be led by what's right, not by what feels good. The reason why we can't be committed to anything, and I'm t- talking to the men. Ladies, you, you give a, a five-minute break here, okay? Although you may applaud what I say. The reason why America is not doing well in its Christianity is because we're not being led by truth. We're being led by how we feel, men. Well, I'll go to church if I feel like it. You know, there's a difference between not feeling good and being sick. You cannot feel good but not be sick. Listen, being sick is a reason to miss church. Not feeling good is not a reason to miss church. Well, I got a hangnail this morning. I don't think I can go to church. How many kids, how many people have to stay home to blow a kid's nose? Right? My three-year-old has a cold. I don't think any of us can go. Leave mama with the baby and get your tail in church. And take the rest of the kids with you. Well, I had a hard week. Oh, I'm so sorry. You had a hard week. Get yourself out of bed. Get your clothes on. And get to church. And worship the Lord. And do your part to support the cause of Christ. We're just not committed anymore. 
It used to be that on average, uh, a family would miss church one out of every five weeks. That's now slipped to one out of every three weeks. Why? Because we're just not committed. It used to be that Sunday was the Lord's Day. We gave the whole day to the Lord. Now we etch in an hour and a half. And if Pastor Lejeune preaches five minutes longer than he ought to, we're going to complain because I have things to do in my Sunday. Excuse me, Sunday belongs to the Lord, not to you. Are we committed or are we a bunch of pushover pansies? Are we committed or are we being led by how we feel? It's time that the men of this country and the men of this church grow a backbone and stand up and say, I'm going to do what's right regardless of how I feel. I'm going to lead my family to do what's right regardless of how they feel. We will stand for the cause. We will fight for the Lord. The giants of this country that oppose the Christian faith, they're not going to go down unless the men are willing to stand up and be committed. He was concerned. He was committed. Notice letter C, David was confident. David was confident. Look down at verse number 26. The Bible says, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. While everyone else is running away from the giant, David began to walk toward him. David was prepared. David was confident in his God-given abilities and in the God whom he worshipped. The confidence, uh, this confidence got to the ear of Saul, and David found himself defending before Saul his own abilities. Look down at verse 37. We're looking ahead a little bit to next week's material, but look at verse 37. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Why was David filled with confidence? Well, number one, he believed that if he stepped out by faith to defend the cause of his God, that God would have his back. He believed that God had his six. And he wasn't afraid. He said, You know what? You all look out there and you see a giant, and I see a giant God behind the giant. I see the giant God who made the giant. And I see that that guy is on my team. And I see that with me and that guy, that giant's going down. Could it be that we don't stand for Christ? Could it be that we're not confident because we lack faith in our God? We put so much attention on my ability or your ability. We put so much attention on our, on our own ability. And God says, listen, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, I ordain strength. Out, I use the weak uh, to take down the mighty. I use the dumb to confound the wise. God says, I don't need you to be anything but available and submissive because it ain't about you. It's about me. And if you'll get on the team and you'll fight for the cause and you'll get behind me and you'll believe, then God says, I can work through you. God needs an army of people who stand up and say, I'm fearless. I'm fearless because I don't fear man. I fear God, and I'm on His team, and me and Him together, there isn't anything we can't do. Why was David filled with confidence? Well, secondly, he knew that he had developed his God-given abilities. He knew that he was prepared to defend the cause. Really quick here, David had spent time out in the field with a slingshot. I, I, we'll talk about this more next week. But when I was a little boy, I heard it taught that David just flung a rock haphazardly in the air 
and God, boop. Listen, did God steer the rock? We'll find out when we get to heaven. But can I just give you my theory? I think David was so well practiced with the slingshot. I think David probably hit him first try on his own. You say, well, why did he pick up four other rocks? Because the Bible tells us that Goliath had four other brothers. David said, all right, let them come. I'll knock them down. I only need one per guy. One bullet, one bullet per giant. That's all I need. You say, well, was God involved? Yes, God was involved. But you know what David did? He worked, and he worked, and he worked. When no one else was looking, David was preparing. When no one else was looking, David was walking with God. When no one else was looking, David was falling in love with his God. And when the time came, he was confident because he was prepared. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. God uh, will perform a work in you, but not if you're being anemic, not if you're spiritually lethargic, and not if you're spiritually apathetic. We have an absolute cause. Uh, We have a cause that is superlative. We have a cause that Christians need to learn to stand for. Christians need to be committed. Christians need to be uh, confident. And Christians need to be concerned. May God stir our hearts this evening as we look at these truths, every head bowed, every eye closed, every head bowed, every eye closed. Christian, tonight I want to ask you a question. Is there a cause? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause to get behind? Is there not a cause to get serious about? May God break our hearts. May God show us that we need to be committed anew to this great cause. Lord, please take the passionate truth that's been preached tonight and stir us. Lord, beyond the altar or our place of prayer this evening, may there be real changes in each of our lives. And God, may we be a little bit more uh, concerned than we were before we came in. May we be a little more committed than we were before we came in tonight. Lord, may we be a little more confident as we work to trust You and work hard to develop our abilities. God, please show us how we can take up the cause and do our part to see Your Word go forth to a world that's lost and hurting. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our